I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history... We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. We've got a bit of a treat for you today, haven't we, Alex? Oh, hell yes, we do. (laughs) Because not only... Is the amazing goddess of medieval shit, Eleanor <laughs> But she's got me. She's had enough. She is sick of telling idiots on Twitter who, who go, oh, sit down, little lady, and I'll explain to you about medieval stuff. She's sick <laughs> of telling them that the Dark Ages is a myth. So she's going to tell us for the next hour why... You all need to sit down and shut up. Listen, <laughs> you will be you will be lucky if it's only an hour. <laughs> so sit Absolutely down. Absolutely not. Shut Absolutely. up. The lady with the doctorate is about to get going. You're right, Eleanor. Yeah, I'm all right. You know, um, I'm very excited uh, to be doing this because now I can just link this in lieu yeah. of having ongoing Twitter yeah, arguments, and that's going to be basically my my gift to you. A link. <laughs> Go listen to this and then come back. Or don't mm-hmm. come back, preferably. But if you do, mm-hmm. then you'll be. Edited. Don't come back. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm fine. Like my, this, none of these interactions have ever like graced my life in any way. You know? <laughs> right. What does this silly term "dark ages" actually mean? Okay, so this is the thing, right? Because there, it used to be that historians use the term "dark ages." And when we use the term dark ages, it's a specific reference to the early medieval period. Now, because everyone here is very clever, we all know that the medieval period goes roughly from about the fall of Rome in 476, the fall of Western Rome, that is, to, you know, question mark up at the other end, like maybe the 1500s, something like yeah. that. You know, right maybe about you're when gonna Henry VII dies. Yeah, Henry VII, is it Columbus? Is it the Reconquista of Spain? I don't know. Like, you know, take your pick, but ar- around then, like when the vibe changes, okay? That's so when that's you the lose interest, period. about 1500. Right? Yeah, pretty much, yes, yes. <laughs> When I'm like, oh, it seems too modern to me. Uh, like this is way too, uh, relatable, I say, and then move on. Uh, <laughs> so, so the early medieval period, we generally say goes from about that time, about 476 to eh, maybe about the year 1000, maybe about the year 800, depending on whether or not you're a Charlemagne stan, something like that. But when we use the term dark ages to mean early medieval period, what we mean by that is that it is a time period where we don't have a lot of sources. Yeah. So the term dark here is not a pejorative. The term dark is not like, um, oh, this is a bad time. We mean dark as in occluded, like it's difficult to see. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and this comes from the work of the 16th, sorry, 17th century uh, historian uh, Caesar Baronius. Um, and he was a church historian. And he specifically talks about how it's really difficult to get super great uh, sources for this. So, you know, it's just a little bit dark. We just don't know exactly what's going on. And that's where the term comes from, right? And so when historians throw it around, we mean this very specific technical thing. But when basics throw it around, <laughs> it means something completely different. Um, so we've had to kind of um, abandon the term. Um, overall, partially that's just because um, we spent a few hundred years digging out more sources. So we do know a bit more now than we did. Like, I'm going to be real with you. We're never going to know as much about the year 650 as we are the year like uh, 1350. It's just not going to happen, right? But we've just decided to get rid of the term altogether because of the way that it's misused. Um, because people think that when we say dark ages, we mean, oh, this is really bad um, and stuff was stupid and wrong. Right. So, no, we don't use it anymore. Um, The other issue with the term Dark Ages and one of the reasons why we're going off it is that people think the term Dark Ages means the medieval period generally. Now, so sometimes people will throw the term Dark Ages around just being like, oh, the medieval period, because the medieval period itself is very bad. It's all very bad. It was a thousand years when things were bad. And, and nobody <laughs> watched. And, no, and nobody took a bath. And everyone was burning people as witches. You know, basically they saw Monty Python and the Holy Grail and thought it was a documentary. Yeah. And, and it so, <laughs> and it, which it was. Absolutely. So sorry, everybody. <laughs> I don't mean to... Uh, Soon you'll be telling me that there isn't a religion based on a guy called Brian. I mean, hang on. <laughs> I mean, like, I'm going to be real with you. I love Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Absolutely formative in terms of my sense of comedy. Uh, whether or not it is a great go-to for how you know medieval <laughs> history works is completely in, in the air other than that. So, uh, so yeah, it's, it's basically, it's one of these terms where, um, you know, like historians do on a practical level. The thing that we're always about is that we we are constantly tweaking our terms, right? We'll say like, is this helpful to me? Is it not? And in a lot of ways, the major way that uh, historians are spending their time is by attempting to produce more useful and precise definitions. And when a definition no longer is helpful to us, we get rid of it and we get something more precise in. And that's kind of what's happened with dark ages because it just doesn't suit us anymore. Um, but part of the reason why it doesn't suit us anymore is that everyone was like, it was too, it was too specific for people and people just wanted to feel a certain type of way about the medieval period. And so, yeah, there you go. God. Okay. Well, we need to go back just a little bit because you've, <laughs> well, you've explained very well why we, why we're not using the term anymore because it doesn't it doesn't fit um you touched very briefly on where it where it came from but can you expand on that where why did where did this come from you mentioned one writer in the 17th century the yeah. just been one guy so we yeah, saw well, it's, see, this is the thing. Axe to grind. You mentioned. Yeah, exactly. So, the, the, so this is true. When, when the term dark ages, the first time that it was ever kind of used is not used by Caesar Baronius. When I say that, I mean like in a historical sense, because the first time that the word is used, um, it's used by Petrarch in the 14th century. And so Petrarch is writing from Rome in the 14th century and Rome in the 14th century is, to use a technical term, uh, a shit show. Uh, <laughs> like they're in the midst of like massive civil wars the entire time. Uh, the various um, 
leading noble families are kind of tearing the city up. Um, at, for a while, they try to have like a new like tribunate that's led by Cola di Rienzo. That doesn't work out so well. He gets taken prisoner by um, Emperor Charles IV, the Holy Roman Emperor. It's just like a massive quagmire of drama. Right. Um, also keep in mind that at this time, um, the Pope is not in Rome. The Pope's in Avignon. So when Petrarch is writing specifically about history in Rome, what he's writing is polemic. And what he's arguing for is for Rome to be the most important place in the world. And so when he's writing mm-hmm. about yeah, you know, like theoretical nebulous history. He goes back to like Roman imperial things back in the ancient period when Rome ran everything. And he was like, why isn't it like that? Everything was better when Rome ran everything. I think we can all agree we really liked Rome. Um, <laughs> and so it basically it, it's just him saying that all like the intervening 900 years or whatever since uh, Rome fell has been bad. Boo, it's been a dark age. And everyone agreed it was bad. And it's like... Well, according to whom, mate? Because, like, (laughs) I'm not sure that the majority of Europeans would agree with that. And indeed, like, in the medieval period, there are huge advancements. There's whole parts of Europe that suddenly exist that didn't exist in the Roman period. Like, you know, the lowlands suddenly exist because we figured out how to, like, drain swamps. Um, You know, like, suddenly bits of northern Europe are way more habitable because we've got great inventions like the heavy plow that allow us to do a lot more planting in the north. Stuff like that. So there's been huge major advancements in life. Life for the average person in the medieval period. It's just that they don't material benefit specifically <laughs> Petrarch. So Petrarch sets out to write about how terrible the medieval period is and oh, it's just awful and everyone thinks it sucks. And the thing is, that is a popular way of looking at things for other Italians in this little thing that you may or may not have heard of called, quote unquote, the Renaissance. Uh-huh. <laughs> that comes later. So in the 15th centuries and 16th centuries, a lot of other very prominent Italians then pick that up and run with it, right? And, you know, keep in mind, this is in the middle of a time when art starts to consciously much more reflect classical art. There are, I mean, to be clear here, you know, uh, Renaissance artists know a lot more about art, actually, than uh, classical ones. They're much better with stuff like perspective, for example. But they also really want you to buy that idea. They specifically want you to go, oh, yeah, the medieval period, that was bad. Classical stuff, good. So basically, it becomes this narrative about any time when Italians, as I mean, they're not Italians at the time, mm. but anytime the Italian peninsula is in control of Europe, stuff is good. And anytime the Italian peninsula is not in control of Europe, stuff is bad. Um, and so that's kind of like the narrative running through there. Then that gets picked up during the Enlightenment. Okay, so in the Enlightenment, there is like this big specific push against uh, what people see as like religious interference. Okay, mm-hmm. um, and very specifically within this, you have um, a certain dude called Voltaire, who I'm gonna hunt down when I get sent yeah. to hell and start <laughs> I'm a coming fight. For you. <laughs> yeah, I'll just wait for a Voltaire. It's happening. Uh, But Voltaire in particular starts to um, make his own kind of uh, historical divisions. And he refers to like the Enlightenment and all of that as, quote unquote, the age of reason. Yeah. Um, And so the age of reason is this time when everyone is really intellectual and they don't need things like faith and da 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 da, uh, which is hilarious because, you know, the. You ever tried to read anything by Voltaire? Oh my God. Page three. 
my my man cannot like just stick to a narrative to save That's, his life. I like, wow, yeah, did a book on Peter the Great. I'm so reading this, and it was like it is impossible. He just like runs all over the shop. You cannot follow his line of thinking at all whatsoever. I just so, pompous French ass decides that uh, medieval. Yeah. And he decides that medieval behavior is bad specifically because um, everyone's really religious. So it's the specific axe to grind against uh, Catholicism. Um, and, you know, fair enough. I suppose if I lived in the 18th century, I might be real mad about religion too. I don't know. But on the other hand, I suppose that I feel like and it's not like people in the 18th century were actually super irreligious. <laughs> you know, I'm like, oh, yeah, as opposed to you guys who have it really all figured out, is it? Yeah, sure, yeah. bro. Um, yeah. So... Uh, he picks up on that. He goes to Petrarch and he goes, oh yeah, so this is the thing. This is the Dark Ages. That's the Dark Ages and this is the Age of Reason. Yeah. Um, and everyone goes, yeah, we definitely believe Voltaire. He seems like a, a guy who's not biased at all whatsoever. And then that's how you get here, essentially. He's one of those, do you think he's one of those guys, you know how like everybody thought that everyone else was reading the book? Mm. The book a few years ago about being in a prison in Thailand and everyone said it was their favorite book because they thought it made them sound clever. But in reality, <laughs> nobody I spoke to had actually read it, but they claimed it was their favorite book because they thought it made them look good. I think this is what's happening with Voltaire. Exactly. I mean, cause I cannot explain, you know, the, the interest in Voltaire or the idea that Voltaire has something I particularly new to say, especially about history. Like his history work is just incredibly bad. So, I mean, <laughs> Right, okay. I don't know. So as much fun as it would be to sit here for an hour and crap on a French icon, uh, let's, I want to spend <laughs> time talking about all of the things that were not dark about mm-hmm. this period. So I'm going to bullet point you and you can tell me the awesomeness that happened. Yes, let's sounds great. With Christianization of Europe. Yeah, so, you know, I'm not necessarily like Team Christian, but it's important, right? One of the things that kind of marks Europe out as this specific um, and unique cultural place is the spread of uh, Christianity. And now, um, when, obviously, the Roman Empire falls, it's uh, nominally Christian. Uh, A lot of segments of it are not Christian. They're kind of like, um, you know, a nebulous realm of pagans, but all like the upper echelons are, Mm -hmm. uh, are Christian. Um, and then kind of there is a bit of a scrabble to define what Christianity is at this point in time. So, for example, you'll have um, new kings and stuff come in who are they're like, yeah, yeah, I'm Christian. But they subscribe to what we call the Arian heresy, which is basically saying that the Trinity has like levels to it. Like there's a there's a hierarchy there. Um, so a bunch of stuff gets figured out in that time. But what also happens is this kind of spread of Christianity uh, through Europe generally. And that's really interesting to me. Um, so, you know, watching the successive waves of where it goes and how people respond to it is really um, a kind of argument for more of an overarching culture. Right. Because one of the things that Rome doesn't really manage to do uh, very effectively is get away from, uh, you know, the Mediterranean. Like, sure, it gets up into, for example, what they call Gaul, what we call France, and it gets up to Britain, goes, oh, I'm overextended. And then has to like collapse back <laughs> down immediately. But we do see that, like, at this point in time, Christianity is able to make real inroads and kind of spread uh, through Europe. 
you know, the last places it kind of gets to are like Scandinavia and um, up around kind of like Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia. And that, that happens a lot later, but it produces a lot of really interesting literature for us. Cause for example, if we read, uh, for example, Icelandic sagas, which I recommend that everyone actually get their hands on some um, Icelandic sagas, read some medieval literature. It gets wild. There are tons of monsters, absolutely tons of shagging, brilliant stuff. Yeah, um, and you can, in general. I love it. I love it. And then there'll be like these scenes, for example, um, while, while you're Christianizing where um, like everyone is kind of nominally Christian and there'll be like a storm and they're praying to God to, to change everything. And then like Thor will show up and they'll be like, God damn it, Thor, I wasn't talking to you. And he's like, what's up? I'm here, everybody. And it's, it's really fun, you know? So it's, it's fun to kind of like see how that gets through. So it's just this really important times in terms of like what, tends to define Europeanness because they don't think of themselves as Europeans in the medieval period. There's no real concept of Europe, what they call themselves as Christians. They would refer to what we would refer to uh, as Europe. They call it Christendom. And for them, that's much more important. So it's like just a really interesting time in terms of cultural spread and what makes us the way that we are now. Yeah. Right. Okay. So if I can ask, this isn't on the list of questions and this might be like an essay question that required half an hour to answer, but so Christianity (laughs) all across Europe, Mm -hmm. what kind of parallel can you draw that people would understand how much of a seismic change this was? Is it the same as, uh, like the, the whole, I don't know, the whole eradication of the Native Americans on, on your continent or is it like, it's a big, big deal isn't it's a, it? it's a huge big deal because it is sort of like the creation of a cultural monolith so it, it is sort of like the genocides um, in north america because yeah. what it does is it kind of like replaces several different you know groups of people and forms of worship um and then it just goes like out of the way this is the one now yeah. Right. Uh, so, you know, I, I want to be clear in that um, medieval Europe has lots of different cultures. Things are really different in the South than they are to the North. Everywhere you go is a kind of patchwork. But the one interesting and kind of like overarching thing is this Christianity. And of course, there are Muslims living in Europe. And of course, there are Jewish people. But the massive majority of the population are Christian. They feel very deeply about it. Um, and that's kind of what's going on for them. So yeah, it is very, very close to kind of like a Native American genocide or the genocides in Australia, for example, yeah. that'd be one where it's just when you just kind of like go in and wrecking ball a culture and like replace it with a new one. Only thankfully there's a lot less genocide yeah. <laughs> and a lot more. Yeah. Medieval people are more civilized is what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Medieval people are a lot less into that than uh, modern people. Modern people love a good genocide. Yeah. Uh, medieval people are like, I don't know, just conversion. A little bit right, of conversion. Okay. The places that this is going to, because this is another big thing on your list. Mm-hmm. Birth of towns is a big one. Yeah, the birth of towns. So this is a really interesting one because like one of the things that we kind of point to when uh if people want to be basic about it and talk about like, oh well everything was bad after Rome collapses, is they say, well, cities in a lot of places kind of collapse as a result because cities are really reliant on you know the really intricate trade lines back yep. and forth uh, between places. And, you know, you are reliant on being able to have, a, basically in a city, a bunch of people who aren't doing farm work have to get fed, right? And that's a difficult thing to to manage um, yeah. in a, a world where agriculture is really kind of difficult. So it's, it's absolutely true that, like, larger cities collapse in the medieval period. But what happens instead is the rise of towns. 
there's a difference between a city and a town, not just in like terms of population, but in terms of like what a city does. So there is um, a really fun historical term that we use called the Kriterienbundel, which is obviously German, to talk yeah. about what makes something a city. And it's like, you've got to have kind of like five out of seven of these things. And it's like, it has to be uh, like defensive. It has to have... Um, a diverse economy. It has to have uh, multiple centers of worship. It has to be an administrative center. It has, like, it has to do all these particular things. Um, and what we see in the rise of towns in the early modern period is a strip away from having just one city that does all these things, to having lots of smaller towns that do some of that. So it's actually quite uh, interesting. So here in England, for example, um, we have a shift from uh, Verulamium, which yeah. is the Roman town to St. Albans. And St. Albans is more of a t- town for a while, but it retains a lot of the same sort of things as Verulamium. So Verulamium, when we look at the, um, the Roman Romans, it's got like a couple different kinds of uh, temples for worship. So, uh, you know, they've got your standard kind of pagan stuff, but they also have um, a Mithrarium, I think. Um, they have like an amphitheater, they've got certain things. And then you go have a look at St. Albans and it's like, well, they've got a cathedral, they've got defensive walls, they've got, you know, the same sort of stuff. So like actually by and large, for your average citizen of like the Verulamium St. Albans uh, area, stuff doesn't change all that much. It's just more like you can't get imported goods. Hmm. But what this also means is that people have more of a say in what's going on for them locally. So instead of having to kind of like write to Rome, my God, like, you know, imagine that you're hanging out in St. Albans and anytime you want to get something done, you've got to like wait for a letter back from Rome. You're going to be waiting. Yeah. Don't be waiting for a hot minute. You know, so actually for like, you know, local people who the great majority of uh, people are, it's, this is great because if you could just go to an administrative center that's nearby and get your needs met, that is way better than writing like across the continent for information. Yeah. And so a lot of the time, actually, when we say that, for example, like the Roman way of things was better, we're actually talking about what life was for rich people. Because it's like rich people live in cities and most of them have like, um, you know, out in the countryside, they've got like some huge manor that is like, uh, let's be real, farmed by slaves. It's farmed yeah. by slaves. And uh, then they go hang out in town in the winter. And then in the summer, when towns get smelly, they retreat to the countryside and then they come back in. And in fact, like the word that we have for idiot uh, comes from the Latin that means like rustic or uh, rural. And there's this idea that like men have to spend, well, men of a certain strata have to spend a certain amount of time in cities to prove that they're worldly. But it's like, yeah, the, the majority of people don't go into cities in the Roman period. The majority of people are like slaves and peasants and they're out in the countryside and they don't know about no city. Like, come on now. Like, so who are we? While these towns are being burnt and we're getting away from this whole Roman idea and that, people are still uh, fighting over who's the most Roman. (laughs) Oh, my God, yes. So it's like this this is the the funny thing, right, is that, like, people be like, oh, well, Rome is so much better. And hilariously, medieval people would go, yeah. Like, (laughs) because, like, they loved the idea of Rome and they spent all of this time trying to connect themselves with the conception of Rome. And, like, part of that has to do with just, like, this idea of wielding Christian power to them. They're like, oh, well, these these are the people who did it, and we love that. Um, But they have this real uh, respect for and love of the ancient world, right? So all medieval um, 
you know, thinking is really based on ancient philosophies. So it's like, you are not going to find a group of people who like Aristotle and Plato more than medieval people. My God. Like, it's just Socrates all over the shop. It's just like, they will not shut up for five minutes about medieval people. They're like, ugh. You know, like, you can't read the Bible without them bringing Aristotle into it. It's like, I don't know how you got there, fam, but okay. And they, they love it. They absolutely love it, right? So... What they do, especially in the early medieval period, in order to prove their kind of right to rule, is they explicitly connect themselves to Rome. And that can be done in a couple of ways. So, for example, like one of the first big uh, kings of uh, the of the Italian peninsula after the fall of Rome is uh, Theodoric. And Theodoric is kind of often held up as like, oh, oh, you know, oh, he's quite Roman though. He's quite Roman though. Um, and he's an interesting dude. He was raised at the court in Byzantium. Um, and he was kind of sent over by Byzantium. They're like, I don't know, go over there and see what's happened with Rome. I, I hear they're having some trouble. So he gets sent over, but he is actually, um, he's some kind of barbarian. He's an Amal, I think, something like that. Anyway, uh, so he goes over there. Um, and he sets about telling everyone that actually he's the emperor and like, he's and like, this is Rome still everybody like, don't worry about it. And he's really served in this because he's got Romans who are working at his court. And in particular, the one that we always talk about as Cassiodorus. Cassiodorus, you know, you can tell the name says it all, right? It's like, here's a Roman dude. He was raised at court and he is Theodoric's secretary. So we'll have all these letters, like all these like real letters that are pompsing around talking about like being Roman emperor, talking about the glory of Rome that gets sent out all over Europe. And we're like, oh, wow. Uh, and it's like signed Theodoric. And it's like, he didn't write any of those. It was Cassiodorus. <laughs> it was like this, this Roman guy who was like, okay, I know how to do this. I know how to cement your right as the king. And this is, we're just going to be as Rome as possible about it so that's like one part of it then you'll also see people who are like uh, the king clovis who's the king of the franks love the name clovis just makes me laugh every time um <laughs> and he does not seem like very rome like roman on the the tin of things to us because it's like he seems he seems quite a lot like a frank you know let's be real um when we first meet him he's still a pagan but he converts to Christianity. He kind of like marries the next like Roman woman. And it's like, oh, it's all very like above board. Am I the only then, one that pictures him with little he- hooves because of his name? I know, right? Like, it's just kind of like, <laughs> like he's like a little fawn. Fairy tales. He is like real intense too. Like he's really into a kind of like, there's all these stories about him where like, I don't know, they pillaged someone and then someone took a vase he wanted. And then like he harbors a grudge for some time and then like does a subscribe, like a surprise kind of weapon inspection on all his men. And when the dude who took the vase like has um, rusty armor, he cuts his head off with an ax. I think that's perfectly reasonable. Yeah. You know, and it's, (laughs) Funnily enough, it's like, you know, and we kind of go, oh, very barbaric, not Roman. It's like, oh, but I don't know. But the idea that, like, you could at any point in time be called upon to, like, you know, show your armor in this way. There's this regimented kind of idea of how you need to upkeep things that is quite Roman. And, you know, indeed, when Clovis does convert to Christianity, he spends a bunch of time trying to connect himself to the Roman myth. This goes on and on and on, you know, to our boy Charlemagne. Um, whom you may have heard of, who is crowned uh, king of the Romans on Christmas Day 800 um, in Aachen, as, as you do. Cool. Uh, and, um, you know, so he uh, he's explicitly linking himself to this lineage and to the idea of Rome. And so for people in the medieval period, while they really do uphold Rome, it's less about the place of Rome 
which is kind of like, you know, what Petrarch's saying. He's like, hey, I think we should all go back to Rome. But early medieval <laughs> people are like, Rome is more of a vibe, right? Like Rome is more of an empire and less of a place. So when we think about Rome now, we really situate it as being in the city of Rome. But for medieval people, they're like, no, the point is the empire. The point is the power. And provided that you have kind of like an extensive uh, kingdom or empire that is Christian, then you are calling on that specific lineage. Ah, so that, that, I was going to say, that's interesting. Does this then lead into, is this the papacy? Is uh-huh. this the papacy establishing itself as yeah. the most important worldwide power? Well, see, this is what I find, like, one of my favorite things about the um, early medieval uh, period is the establishment of the papacy. Because when we tend to think about the medieval period, like Voltaire, why he started this whole thing, why he started, why he had this temper tantrum about how the Middle Ages is bad, is uh, because he doesn't like the papacy and he thinks that the papacy is too powerful. And it's actually quite funny because all of our records, like all the records from the early medieval period, it's like popes going, yeah, I'm uh, I'm a real important guy. Just writing in a book about how important I am. But we know for a fact that popes in the early medieval period are like not a thing. Like they are the bishops of Rome, right? Uh-huh. And that's not that no one is saying that being the bishop of Rome isn't very important, right? But especially from a, a standpoint of like early Christianity, that was sort of like, okay, well, you're on par with the bishop of Constantinople. You're on par with the bishop of Antioch. You're on par with the bishop of Alexandria. You're probably not on par, for example, with the uh, emperor in Constantinople. He's higher up than you because uh, Constantinople is doing what we call Caesaropapism, great term, Ooh. where the emperor is also the head of the church. So it's like, yeah, you're one dude, the Bishop of Rome, that other Christians would call on when they're trying to figure something out. Like when they have a synod, which is when, which is basically a big party for bishop. It's like a conference <laughs> where they all beat each other senseless, right? Yeah, exactly. Pretty much. So they go there and they scream at each other and then eventually a document gets written and maybe like people will pay attention to it and maybe not. <laughs> like, so the, 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 we need our own synod when lockdown is over. In a oh my god, yes. We're going to call yes. it the history hack synod, and unless we're <laughs> going to get violent really quickly with each other and screaming each other down about our history stuff being better than the next bit of history stuff, then I will I'm love loving that. this as we an idea. We could all wear robes as well. Oh, can I? All right, I'm definitely coming if there's robes. <laughs> and pointy hats. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And an abundance of jewellery we didn't pay for. Oh yes. <laughs> oh yes. So it's like this, this, this is the thing is that like early Christianity in, in this period is a lot more of a, everyone is still kind of like debating what it is. Like, you know, as I mentioned about the Arian heresy there, I can say the Arian heresy, that was really up in the air. A lot of Christians earlier on were what we would call Arians. And it's like, oh, that's not necessarily true. You know, like there, we're still establishing just what the ground rules are for Christianity in this period. And that's really interesting. Um, so, for example, over in the Eastern Roman Empire, you have like the big debate about iconoclasm where they're trying to decide whether or not it's okay to have icons everywhere. Um, and there's a lot of back and forth of that with like some emperor saying, no, you definitely can't have icons. And then everyone will bring them back because icons rule actually. And then they'll be like, <laughs> I thought you said, I said no. I, and then there's like, like this, the whole thing. Right. Um, and obviously it came down on the side of icon. If anyone's ever been to Greece, you'll be well clear. Yeah. <laughs> on, on where that shook out. Yeah. But um, <laughs> so, you know, th- there are all these muddling around. And so basically the bishops of Rome, 
who are the popes, certainly, spend their time in the medieval period writing these books that talk about how important they are. So um, there, it's like the Liber Pontificalis is one of the big ones. And the Liber Pontificalis, or like, you know, the Book of Popes, is like them being like, I am the Pope, and I am the really greatest, most important guy, and everybody loved me, and everyone said, yes, Mr. Pope, you are so great. And then they all clapped. And then everyone was like, <laughs> okay, yeah. And then like the next Pope will do that, and the next Pope will do that. Now, that's not how things really actually shook out in the early medieval period and especially in the early medieval period like who even is the pope is really up for debate because basically it'll just be like the noble families of rome send their kid out and they're like ah, he's the pope and then the popes will um basically take up residence in the various graveyards in rome where all the bodies of christian martyrs are and they'll be like you can tell i'm the pope because i live next to these bodies of- <laughs> <laughs> you, you, i have access to many fine bones uh, and I'm therefore the Pope. And then the guy will be like, oh, 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 like, uh, as your rival, I think you'll find I have these very fine bones. And so there's like this, this whole thing and they will have like rival factions. So who even is the Pope is hugely up this for debate. This is the period where we get a woman Pope, supposedly as well, isn't it? So yeah, like, the, the Pope Joan myth. Yeah. Yeah. We love the Pope Joan myth. I remember um, hearing that when I was a kid and thinking it was true and just like absolutely oh, loving it and being cool like, if it was true. Wouldn't it be good? I get, I, I get like asked about it a lot and I always feel bad when I have to be like, sorry, no. Yeah. No. I got told just but it's a good story. Real on Robin Hood made Marion yeah. Um And I, I didn't really care. I was, I was just pleased that little John was real. Yeah. Little bad and merry men. Anyway, uh, we have. Oh Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this, I'm, all, I'm all about the very men and not make marriage. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Uh, right. That. We've mentioned Islam briefly because this is categorically the total opposite of dark period oh islam is lighting up the world right now or is that world is lighting up the world i mean a 100 percent quote-unquote dark ages development is the the rise of islam um which they're like a hey everybody we're here it's us it's islam and then b they're like oh and we've conquered like the eighth largest landmass ever conquered in like 25 years how you like that and it's like what hello their science their scientists are changing the world art everything there is everything numbers yeah like so and this is like one of these big things whenever anyone want to talk about like dark ages quote unquote i'm like okay but algebra (laughs) got invented in the dark ages 
because everyone was like, oh, it seems like Arabic numerals actually work real good and nice. And you can't do algebra with Roman. You ever try to do this with a CXD? No, 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 <laughs> no. You need, you need Arabic numerals to be doing like the good stuff, you know, and there's this huge proliferation of, you know, like, um, like Islamic culture, by all means, um, a giant party, like everything that we have, like all, like all of our documents seem to indicate that everyone in the, the Islamic world is like just getting down, like, like eating too much hash. Like the girls are all out going to parties. Everyone's having a wonderful time. There is a lot of hand wringing in the medieval period about uh, when people start converting to Islam and whenever um, Islamic, uh, you know, Islamic stuff starts quote unquote encroaching on Christian land, there'll be this big, uh, all this hair pulling because they're like, everyone's going to convert to Islam because it's easier than Christianity. That's <laughs> like Christian because in Christianity, everyone has to fast all the time. It's like you're not supposed to be having fun, and Islam are over there being like party, party, <laughs> party, and everyone's like fuck Islam again. And so they're having a great time. They're inventing algebra. Um, they are doing a great job with stuff like um, you know eye surgery, you know yeah. something just a little little bit of that. Like um, they invent, for example, um, dissolvable stitches in this period, so that when you have surgery you don't have to then cut someone back open to take the stitches out. Mm. So that's, that's nice. We like that. Right. You know, so like in this period, medicine actually advances a huge amount. And it's one of the really interesting things about like the way that we think about quote unquote dark ages is that when you talk about history from this period, people think somehow they've got it in their heads that like Romans had workable medicine. And I have no idea where they got that from. None at all. It's like, they did not, they were going on humors and vibes. Uh, it's like the Romans, for example, are like the first ones who uh, made it illegal to um, cut up cadavers and stuff for anatomy practice. And actually in the medieval period, you have more periods of time when people are like, oh, no, 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 you better get some anatomy practice in there. We'll go get you a cadaver than in the Roman period. In the Roman period, they were like, how dare you do not cut open that body? Whereas like medieval Christians were like, oh, yeah, we better get a body in here, huh? You know, and like there would there would be laws against it. Like, for example, it stays um, illegal for a really long time uh, here in England, but um, on the Italian peninsula and stuff like that, everybody agreed that this is something you needed to do. Anyway, um, so Islam is doing a bunch of really amazing things, and Christians see this and know this too. So um, especially in Spain, where you have a real mixed group of people, so you have a, a lot of Islamic people, you have a lot of Jewish people, you have a lot of Christian people, there's a real interest in getting um, Arabic sources and translating them. Um, and so it's really quite funny too, because a lot of the time um, they will get a hold of older Greek works that they didn't have already because the um, Islamic people would kind of like get them from Byzantium, translate them into Arabic. Then they would go over to Spain and then they would get translated out of Arabic and then into Latin. And and then like the Western Europe would get hold of it. And it's like, you could just talk to Constantinople and like Western Europe is like, no. no I won't. <laughs> and it's like, I don't know why. I don't know why you, but like, so a lot of the time you'll get things coming in through um, Islam. And it's like the, the Islamic golden age is like smack dab in what you call the quote unquote dark ages. Spain. This is the period when they conquer Spain. And yeah. look at that. I mean, I did a tour of Andalusia. I did a road trip. Oof. Oh, man, it's beautiful. Oh my God. One of my favorite places in the world, Andalusia. I'm yeah. absolutely obsessed. I'm absolutely Bolivar. obsessed with Granada. This Quito, I'm like, don't oh, tell me that this was yeah. the dark ages. This is when these people got here. Yeah. And it's, and it's great. 
You know, and and like fundamentally, all of that is, you know, it's one of those things when people say, oh, if you had to live in the medieval period, like where would you live or whatever? And I'm always like, Granada, next. Like, yeah. it's just like not even a question. It's just like life was pretty freaking good there. And so if what we're saying is that like the Dark Ages is this time where, you know, there is an advancement. It's like, well, how do you explain all of the advancement then? And <laughs> I mean... Like, a lot of it comes down to, like, it makes people sad in their feelings that it was, like, you know, Muslim people doing it and not necessarily, like, white Europeans. It's like, well, I'm sorry. I don't know what to tell you. And, like, all of, like, the white Europeans at the time were like, I love I love what you're doing here. Maybe not the whole Allah thing, but what can I see your notes? Like, you know, that's much more of of what the vibe is. And everyone agrees that, like, this is this is good stuff at the time. So how are you going to ignore all of that? Like, that's very, very silly, you know? Um, so there's this huge proliferation of culture, science, maths, all these wonderful things that are happening at the time. And fundamentally it's just not, you, you know, there is no kind of like quote unquote, like relapse into ignorance. Like that's just stupid. Like, what does that even mean? You know, yeah. bah, bah, I get so mad. I'm so mad. <laughs> I just imagine them all walking around at the time with their little red Murga hats on, you know, make Rome great again. Oh my Stop God. Paying attention to what's going on over there. Exactly. Exactly. It's dark. Oh no, you don't like it. It's very bad. Bad. <laughs> You've mentioned like, Charlemagne. He's not exactly dark and non-productive, is he? Well, yeah. So Charlemagne, um, he's kind of funny because he does a couple things. One, he's sort of the dude who inadvertently makes popes important. Um, because, uh, so, uh, the Pope at the time, um, got, well, right before Charlemagne gets crowned emperor, um, the Pope at the time was having a nice little walk as one does in, uh, Rome and, uh, got a fairly severe beat down in the street, <laughs> uh, which is, uh, you know, indicative of the fact that Popes were not that important because you could just be like, do to do and everyone would be like hey there's the pope let's get him and like no one would do anything <laughs> I love that. it's that weird pope guy that hangs around in the cemetery get him oh it's like i hate that guy you know so ba- basically one family thought that their guy should have been elected pope stop me if you've heard this one before and he wasn't so they beat the pope up right <laughs> that's why they got the pope mobile yeah now that's why that's why we have pope mobiles now to stop all this from happening so <laughs> A couple of Charlemagne's dudes were there. They're like, oh, poor Pope, come with us. We'll take you up to court and, like, Charlemagne will look after you. And Charlemagne was like, there, there, little Pope. Uh, like, it'll all be okay. While you're here, I'm about to be crowned emperor. Why don't you do that for me? Why don't you crown me emperor of Rome? And the Pope was like, oh, okay. Ooh. And then everyone is like, oh, look at this. So th- this kind of starts off this whole, like, um, struggle for the rest of the medieval period where with the holy roman emperor uh holy roman emperors will be like well it's the pope's job to just crown us when we're elected a holy roman emperor and the popes will go no you're not the holy roman emperor unless i crown you i make the decision and there's a whole struggle but it's like one of the first times when the pope is seen as this kind of like international important person so charlemagne does that number one Number two, Charlemagne kicks off this thing that we call the Carolingian Renaissance. And it is very, very good. So um, the Carolingian Renaissance is basically when Charlemagne starts a specific program where he wants to copy lots of classical texts and make sure that everyone like around in Europe has access to the same classical texts. 
As a part of this, they also um, invent a particular script that we call Carolingian minuscule. Um, and medieval historians worldwide just sigh in relief every time a document is in Carolingian minuscule because it's very easy to read. It's really easy to follow along with. And they invent it because they're like, okay, how can we make it as clear as possible? Like what these documents are. We want to make sure that everyone has the same kind of footing and understanding of classical texts and classical works. And Charlemagne kicks that off. Um, as part of that, he also sends a lot of funding to like monasteries who are like the big script makers of the day. Like they're the ones who hang out, like writing everything down. Well, um, it's because there are no documents, right? It's the dark ages. It's the dark ages. There's none, there's <laughs> none documents, zero documents. We just didn't have any. Um, and then like they start like, like saying, well, this is what schools should teach. They start a lot of cathedral schools. So they, they have it set up so that um, anytime there's a cathedral in the city, in theory, you can send your kids there. Well, I mean, I said kids, I mean sons. Uh, you can send your sons there and they'll get educated in this particular way that Charlemagne has established and he establishes this great court culture. So this is so incredibly impactful, the Carolingian Renaissance, that in the uh, renaissance writ large quote unquote whenever one is all like oh we need to go back to how things were during rome because rome is so good they go dig out the oldest copies that they can find of like the aeneid or whatever the fuck and they're like ah see the way this is written this is how romans wrote and then they um invent this new script that is called humanist script and it's not how romans wrote it's how carolingians wrote so it's like actually the whole idea of what writing is and what texts are quote unquote classical is based on Carolingians in the dark ages. It's not based on fucking Roman, whatever. It's like, oh, those are developments specifically in the medieval period. Granted, the texts themselves are ancient, but it's like they, the ones that are considered important are kind of like hand selected by Charlemagne. The script that they're written in, he invented. It's like, this is a dark ages thing. So, you know. So blow me every Renaissance guy. <laughs> yeah. That's hardly, that's hardly dark. So we've, we've talked about the amazing advances happening in Islam. We've talked about what Timothy Chalamet is up to. Um, <laughs> and his hair. Uh, but there's, there's some other dudes we haven't spoken about with the best hats ever. The Vikings are hey. in the dark ages. What, what are the Vikings up to? Yeah, so this is a really interesting one because like, um, some lovely, uh, I was having a lovely conversation with a really nice guy on Twitter the other day who was asking me some questions about Vikings. And um, he said to me, oh, well, this might be uh, before your era because it's Viking Age, not medieval. And I was like, the Viking Age is medieval? What? You know, <laughs> so it's kind of confusing. Like, um, it's all mine. Yeah, like, and I'm like, huh, interesting, you know, but like the Vikings, let's uh, be clear, the Vikings are specifically medieval. And when we use the term Viking Age, we're just kind of like talking about this particular period of time for sort of like Northern Europeans um, and indeed uh, Scandinavian folks, because I don't know if you know about the Vikings, but they were quite good at fucking shit up. <laughs> um, unfortunately sorry to everybody their hats were not that good there were oh, no man. horn hats there were no yeah, horn hats i know like 19th century add-on apparently yeah it's like a victorian thing because oh, it's it's still cool it's still cool but they yeah, were much more like that idiot in the capital was running around with a victorian tribute hat on oh that guy i have nothing yeah. but bad things to say about him <laughs> um so they would usually wear kind of like conical little helmet 
which is cute. Um, so the, the, the Vikings obviously are Scandinavian and like Viking actually kind of like the term. It's like one goes Viking, right? Like one goes out to Vike. Oh, <laughs> sort okay. of like the, the idea there. Um, it's a doing the, word. Yeah, exactly. Um, so they would kind of farm. Uh, you know, and then they would also get in their ships and go wreak havoc, uh, quite famously. So um, in this school, an annual rugby tour, basically. Very much so. (laughs) Very much so. So it's like, you know, quite famously, um, here in England, you know, they take over the north and they establish Jorvig, which we call York. Um, you know, they take over Dublin. Um, you know, they get up the Volga River in, uh, what is now Russia. Um, and, you know, very interestingly, they, for example, spent a lot of time um, attacking Carolingian lands. So Charlemagne's dead by this point. But, like, one of the big things that kind of, like, brings his dynasty down um, is the Vikings. And not because they managed to, like, strike at the heart of Carolingian Although, like, they do siege Paris for, like, a couple years or something like that. They, like, really take on Paris. And, like, and Paris is a city-city. Like, in the medieval period, it's, you know, even in the, the early medieval period, it's there's a lot going on in Paris. Anyway, they siege it, get a bunch of stuff. It's, like, a whole thing. They're constantly just, like, attacking, you know, monasteries and stealing all the good stuff and fucking back off to Scandinavia. They are constantly trading with Byzantium. And, indeed, they are the major bodyguards for the emperor. So it's like, they're like, oh, you gotta get yourself some Vikings. Like, get yourself some Vikings to, like, so they, like, they have an established kind of connection with Constantinople. We'll see kind of like, um, furs that we know came from Scandinavia at court in uh, Constantinople and we'll find like Constantinople jewelry up in Scandinavia. Like, there's a big trade back and forth. So their boats are this incredible technical achievement because it's like, it's something like they can float in like a couple feet of water. Like, it's absolute madness, right? So their major thing, actually, is it's not just, like, seacoasts. They go, they can go up rivers, like, as I mentioned with the Volga, or when you're attacking Paris. They went up the Seine, right? <laughs> it's like, so they, they've got these boats that can float in absolutely no water, but hold tons of dudes. And they just all boil out, steal all your shit, get back in, and, like, go back to Scandinavia. And everyone's like, excuse me, what just happened? So it's like, this is an amazing, amazing technological achievement that they've got going for them. Uh, but they bring about the fall of the Carolingians, because part of the way that the Carolingians are ruling, like Charlemagne and all that, you know, you get yourself crowned by the Pope and it's like, oh, I am by divine right. God wants me to be the emperor and like the representative of Christendom and Rome on earth. And um, then they're like, so you're saying that God likes you? And the Carolingians are like, yes. And they're like, uh-huh. So these pagans keep attacking Paris and that, that keeps happening. Do, do you see all the pagans? They just stole all my stuff. And they're like, yes. Are you going to do anything about it? No. And so everyone starts to kind of like question the legitimacy of the Carolingians because they're like, well, how come you can't stop these guys? You're so smart. Like you're so good at this or whatever. So like within this time and within this period, you know, like the Vikings are kind of moving all over Europe. They're spreading this really particularized and interesting culture. You know, eventually they get up to Iceland, which, you know, it's not, I think that this is just high medieval period when we get to Iceland, but, um, you know, uh, Europeans, well, slash everybody discovers Iceland in the medieval period. Like that was not a place that anyone had got to yet. 
Like when it was one of the last places on earth that like white people showed up and they were like, huh, there's no one here. And there really wasn't anyone there. <laughs> like, you know, white people love playing that one being like, oh, I'm here in Australia and there's nobody here. And it's like, there's definitely a lot of people here, but in Iceland, there was nobody. Right. So there are all these cool achievements as a result of Viking technology. And we actually really like Vikings, sometimes quite dodgily. In the case of certain individuals who decide to like uh, try to do a coup in Washington, D.C. But, you know, <laughs> this is like a culture that we're quite interested in and that we big up all the time. But we try to like extract them like from the early medieval period or the concept of the Dark Ages. And we go, yeah, but they were cool, though. And it's like, mate, you can't kind of like pick and choose like that, can you? It's, it's sort of like either you like it or you don't. Uh, and like their whole shtick is extremely like early medieval um, I don't know. Go read their sagas. You'll like it. You're going to love it. It's fantastic. So. Brilliant. Um, we just touched on this and we have to address this. All this, we call it dark because it's so dark because we can't see it because there's no documents. Only really applies to one place, doesn't it? It's nonsense when you look at the whole world. Yeah. So it's like even like the term, like the way that we like define medieval or whatever is a really interesting one because it's like specifically in this very like Western European concept, right? Because we go, you know, I said, well, it's from the fall of Rome and everyone in Constantinople would be like, excuse me? (laughs) I think you'll find that we are Rome. And like, in fact, like our term, like Byzantium, they never use that. That's not what they called themselves. They're like, yes, hello, we're the Eastern Roman Empire and we continue to be here doing our thing. Like they are still within this, uh, one of my favorite stories from uh, the Dark Ages, quote unquote, in uh, Byzantium is there's this giant riot called the Nikia riots. And the Nikia riots uh, come about because uh, there is like some unrest involving the chariot teams there. So there's like four chariot teams. There's like the blue, red, green uh and white i think are the chariot teams and like everyone is really into them and then like some of them do a crime and then they get kind of punished even though they like went and took sanctuary to church and then everyone just like loses their minds and riots there's this huge riot like based on like the the their chariot teams and what's happening there a few thousand people die it's like quite bad right (laughs) and uh and there is just like and, and everyone is going around yelling nikia which means victory and they kind of like try to take the emperor down. Now, the reason why I think <laughs> that this is chariot themes, right? This is, yeah, right. It's like it's extremely like, like football, football hooligans. hooliganism. Yeah, so just thinking but... like football hooligans. If a thousand people die, you'd be like, yeah, you're just like, what? whoa. So, but what's really instructive about this, like in terms of the way that we go, oh well, in the Dark Ages, all cities collapsed and they lost all contact with Roman culture, which is really good. It's like, well, how do you explain the Nikia riots, right? Because first of all, you're, you're having like a chariot racing taking place on like a monumental scale that so many people are interested in. You've got enough people hanging out in Constantinople that like when a chariot riot gets a little out of hand, a thousand people die. Like that's a lot of people, right? <laughs> like that's just tons of actual people. And it's like the emperor is still there. There's the chariot racing. There's your right. What do you, how am I meant to understand this as like not Rome, right? Like, how am I meant to understand that as like, oh, everything's collapsed. Society is just completely collapsed. I just don't know. You know, there are no cities anymore. No, I will not like elaborate any further. It's like, well, I don't know, man, go there and like have a look at what's happening in, you know, the Greek language world, because it seems to me like it's all going off pretty well. Right. And, you know, we're like, oh, oh, the world lost all these classical texts. Again, what, one more time. Why don't you go over to Constantinople? 
and just check out all of the texts that they have, right? Because, like, famously, one of the things that we say, like, starts the Renaissance off is when Constantinople falls in the 15th century. All of the Greeks kind of pick up all their books and move west. Everyone goes, oh, we've rediscovered all these Aristotle texts that we didn't have before. And it's like, why didn't you ask? It's like, it's not like they were gone, you know, it's just basically like, well, if it's not the Latin speaking world doing it, it's not happening. It's just not, it wasn't happening at all. It wasn't <laughs> happening at all. And it's like, literally, even if we're just doing this based on kind of like white people cultures, there was a whole bunch of people doing it and you just didn't care. Yeah. And so it doesn't even make sense in terms of like what is actually happening at the time because Byzantium is doing uh, just fine. You know, they, they definitely lose a lot of land, uh, during the Islamic conquests. Like they lose Egypt and stuff and they never really get over that. They take it very poorly. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's, they, they are there persevering and, you know, living in quite a lot of luxury, to be honest. So. so if the term dark is really no longer useful to us, we need something to call mm-hmm. this time. So what, what do we call it now? What's, what's the better? name for the dark ages so now we just say early medieval period and that's it that's oh, it. you know and it does it, it does what it says on the tin it's like yeah so many syllables eleanor oh <laughs> i know it's like yeah like literally i think that that is kind of like what it comes down to a lot of the time like resistance against this is just i have to say more yeah it is because the dark ages is so pithy Mm-hmm. And I think the thing with Dark Ages, too, is that part of our interest in using the term Dark Ages, especially as a pejorative, is that it makes us feel good about ourselves. Mm. It's like it really feeds into our desire to be, like, better than the people who came before us. It's like, oh, history is just one long line of moving towards better things, except when it wasn't because Rome was good, but then the Middle Ages were bad. But now we're overcoming all of that, right? It's like there's this sort of desire on our parts to be like, oh, well, mustn't grumble. Things are fine now because it could be worse. You could be living in the dark ages when it's bad. And so, like, part of it is just about, like, making ourselves feel better about ourselves, you know. Um, But, you know, from a historical standpoint, it don't make too much sense, I got to say. So I'm afraid you're going to have to say more syllables. We're (laughs) saying early medieval period. If you want to be more specific within that, you know, we do have terms like Viking Age which, you know, specifically more refers to Scandinavia. We do have, you know, um, terms like um, Al-Andalus. If you want to talk about, like, uh, Muslim culture in Spain, you could just say, you know, in Al-Andalus, and everyone will go, right, got it. But having said that, all of these things are under the umbrella term of what we would have called Dark Ages before, and which we're just, we're not, we don't know her anymore. We don't know Dark Ages. No. She's dead. She's gone. No. She's off. She's done this in, like, 54 minutes. Yeah, well, you know, that's because I'm a consummate professional. I know. I mean, like, we, like, literally, we, we thought we might be here for a few hours because you had shit to say. <laughs> <laughs> I restrain myself. Yeah. <laughs> you have, uh, completely. Anyone who now comes at you with the Dark Ages thing, uh, yeah, if you don't have 54 minutes to fix yourself, don't talk to me. Well, exactly. I mean, and the point of it is, too, I think that when people use the term dark ages, they're actually doing themselves a disservice because you're like, you're basically saying that there's 500 years of history that you're too good for. And it's like really interesting. 
Um, you know, if this isn't even my area of expertise, I'm just fangirling right now, right? Like, <laughs> I'm more of like a high to late medievalist, but it's just like, I know what is good and I know what's happening there. And so, you know, I feel the need to stick up for it. You know, there's a lot of people who are braver than me who are sitting around like wheedling with really difficult texts all the time. And we have, know, got- there was an interview, I think this is probably going to go up before it, but so we have coming, uh, Annie Humphreys talking about Viking slash Irish stuff. Yes, uh, which is all about the the stuff that's happening in this period, and like you mm-hmm. said, Dublin wouldn't exist. Yep, you know, like the, the, there are so many things that we kind of take for granted. It's like, yeah, like Paris, yeah, kind of good, uh, you know, things like that. Where it, it's it, these are all inventions of this particular period, and you know, say what you will, like go ahead and be Voltaire about how like you don't like the church or like you don't like Christians or something. I don't know. I don't know, like, why you got to be that basic about it. Like, it's all black and white, but say you don't like that. I mean, it's still interesting and it's still important to know about. Like, you can't actually really formulate um, good arguments against something if you don't know about it. Yeah. So, you know, if you are pretending to be this enlightened person in the 21st century who is just way, way too good for the early medieval period and you're just much, much smarter than them, well, you're going to need to demonstrate that to me by actually knowing what you're talking about when you talk about the early medieval period. If you're so fucking smart, then how come you haven't read, like, anything about this? How come you don't have 54 minutes to listen to me rant? (laughs) If you're so smart that you can ignore 500 years of history and still make... A, a well-informed point then you know hats off yeah like viking 100%, 100% uh, my my viking hat is off to anyone who can do that i have yet to see it <laughs> but you know like i'll be really excited when it does happen you know voltaire <laughs> oh, right eleanor you have been amazing as ever People are going to love this. Uh, you know, basically the most popular guest we have. So, Oh, you. Stop. <laughs> and this one especially, because uh, it really does actually, I think, put the final nail in the coffin of all this Dark Ages shit. Let's, let's be done with this. We're but, done. Wait, but, it's taken up too much mic. of our time. Yeah, drop the mic. You're done. Mm-hmm. I'm out. <laughs> no more. Don't forget that we do exist on Patreon as History Hack and on Patreon as well, which is Podbean's own version. Uh, Alina and I have had massive fun doing this in 2020, uh, but life's going to change quite a lot next year and we're going to actually have to go and earn a living, etc. If we want to keep up the regularity that we've been bringing you and the kind of guests that we've been bringing you and the workload, then we will need your help. So uh, if you join... There's going to be incentives for joining on either of those platforms. We're revamping ourselves on both of them. So don't forget to go in. You can do as little as a dollar a month and it all goes towards keeping up History Hack as regular as we've been able to bring it to you this year. When our guests join us to talk about their work in their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them, and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash hack history, or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support, and here's to your next great book. 
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.